going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, my friends. A very happy Thursday. I'm kind of curious how the weather's looking. Uh, Today is supposed to mark the very beginning of slow pitch season. And I reiterated this uh, back on Monday, but I'll I'll say it again because it is Thursday now. uh, Last year... We play every week through Calgary Sport and Social Club on Thursdays. And over the course of 16 weeks of ball, I think we were rained out about four times. We also had a smoke out at one point. Uh, I think we had two really good Thursdays. And as I was talking to Dave Popowicz earlier today, I said, what's not really funny about it is that there would be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, where it'd be Highs of 25 to 30, and it was beautiful out. And then Thursday would roll around, and it'd be raining, and then it'd be sunny for the rest of the week. I'm not saying that the baseball gods were against us, but they might very well have been. So don't be shocked if it starts raining or snowing or doing crazy weather things every Thursday from here on out. So uh, fun times ahead. Also fun times ahead when it comes to today's show. And it's going to start off Mary Moran, the brand new chair of Sport Calgary. And wanted to bring Mary in. Also, Katrina Malimay Doan is a part of the organization now. And one of the things I wanted to get is sort of an idea as to where Sport Calgary is going from here. There are a ton of people involved in sport, whether you are a young athlete, whether you are a parent, a volunteer, you name it. And so I wanted to get a sense of where this organization goes from here. There are a lot of big topics up for discussion. I mean, the, the field house is obviously one to the big arena, but I don't know if there's any play in there for Sport Calgary. We'll talk to Mary Moran about that and much more in just a few minutes. One of the things that I went on on a bit of a tangent yesterday on was the idea that consultation is basically code for dragging heels. As it turns out, the Fraser Institute has put out a report saying maybe what we need is a little more in the way of ideas and frameworks surrounding consultation and what that all means. Malcolm Lavois will join us from the University of Alberta after four o'clock to dive into what he found, what he is recommending for the federal government and for others to at least think about when it comes to frameworks and consultation. We're also going to dive back in. I I did this yesterday um, in terms of, I, I love providing context behind some of the clips that you hear in the news. And there's been, I'm going to call this the audio of the day. Because a lot has been said, clearly, Premier Jason Kenney meeting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today. What did he have to say? Also, conserv- federal conservative leader Andrew Scheer going to town on the federal liberals over uh, our icy relationship with China as of late. I want to play that audio from question period. I love playing question period audio because it just gives you a sense of the playpen that is involved on that front. Again, we're going to start things off talking sport in our city. Mary Moran, the brand new chair of the board of directors with Sport Calgary next here on Calgary Today. Sport Calgary announcing earlier this week, Mary Moran has been unanimously selected as the chair of its volunteer board of directors. What's next for Sport Calgary? Joining us now is Mary Moran. Mary, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm going to ask that right off the bat. What is next in your eyes for Sport Calgary? Yeah, I mean, Sport Calgary is uh, really very focused on kind of uh, inspiring uh, young athletes, engaging them and making sure that they're participating in sport and uh, helping them to 
play and learn more about sports so they can live an active and healthy lifestyle and be great contributing members to our community. There's a lot of different facets to that. And let's start with facilities. What is needed here and what do you believe you'll be advocating for, for, uh, from, uh, for help with from the city, from province and from other stakeholders? Well, I mean, there's obviously a number of projects and many people have heard about the uh, the effort to get the entertainment entertainment district, uh, including BMO and uh, an event center, which would in, include uh, public access uh, to that. Uh, but of course, the probably the highest priority for Sport Calgary would be the field house and, um, uh, you know, what we're going to do up at the Foothills Athletic Park uh, to ensure that we are able to compete in attracting events here, but also make sure that we have a great facility for uh, the, a number of community members that want to participate in summer sports here. That field house has been on the, the to-do list for so long. What do we need to do to finally make that a reality and get at least a shovel in the ground? Well, I think we've made great progress, and um, particularly given that uh, the city has been very focused on this and has essentially uh, uh, agreed to fund all of the projects uh, that are in that. So the four projects being the BMO Convention Center, uh, the new event center uh, or arena, as well as Arts Common and the the multi-sport field house. So I think we're moving in the right direction. And I think that, uh, you know, this has been a long-standing item, as you have said. It's been in a number of Olympic bids, including the most recent one. Um, but I think we've got a really good grassroots effort that, uh, to support this. And uh, I think now we're seeing that it's coming to light and it's getting more attention. And I think that's all. It's going to be great for all amateur sport in Calgary. You mentioned the Olympic bid and clearly everybody goes, okay, it's that's over and done with. But at the same time, it did open up a few uh, conversations that maybe weren't being had before. Yeah, I do agree with that. And I, you know, I think, you know, Calgary's got to continue to stand up and be proud that we will always be an Olympic city. I mean, the Olympic 88 Olympics made a big difference for this community. And it doesn't mean that we won't hold uh, another Olympics. I uh, 100% respect why people voted against it, but uh, we shouldn't uh, shut our aspirations down at that. And, um, you know, we do, we're a winter, winter sports center of excellence and we should continue to pursue that perhaps in a better day. And, uh, and uh, with some greater leadership. And um, I, I think there's still an opportunity for us in the future. There's been a lot of talk about wind sports in the future there and what's going to happen with the ski hill and, and the oval, for example. I mean, how do you manage to keep and maintain that winter city or winter sports city mantra when you're dealing with all the uh, pressures that we have been dealing with over the last few years? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think um, although we're we're talking about a lot of new facilities, that there's a lot of conversation going on about the existing facilities. And uh, we uh, are working uh, collectively, including with Windsport and the Oval, to talk about, uh, you know, how you prioritize the new ones with uh, the demands or requirements for some of these old facilities. And so that conversation is going on at... Uh, all orders of government, the city, uh, because they can help support uh, the requests that go into the federal and provincial government. And so those conversations are still relatively preliminary in the planning stage, but uh, we are having those conversations. So, you know, I think uh, working together is going to be a big, big, uh, it's going to be very, very helpful for us to do that. And we do need support from all orders of government uh, in order to make sure that those are kept up to par and uh, that we can continue to attract, you know, this big tourism 
uh, piece that comes into this community to use and train and uh, compete uh, at those facilities. You obviously have your, uh, you're also, I don't want to call it side gig, but with Calgary Economic Development, mm-hmm. your involvement there. And talk about the connection between economic development and sport and how they are sort of hand in hand in a lot of aspects. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, we're, we're um, you know, although we have a lot of people that are unemployed here, we want to try to keep those people here and keep them, there's a strong sense of attachment. And a lot of that has to do with the quality of life that we have here. And our key job over the next few years is to try to make sure that if their jobs don't come back in the energy industry, that we find opportunities and help retrain them here. And then there's, you know, we're going to have to recruit some talent that uh, will help us round out the talent uh, that's really more focused on advanced technologies here because it's coming to all of our industries. And so having a great quality of life helps us attract people here to the community. And, you know, we want to retain as many of the students that come out of our post-secondaries. And so, again, having, um, you know, this these great venues and uh, obviously our Rocky Mountain Playground are, are a real competitive advantage for us uh, with other Canadian cities uh, when we're trying to retain uh, retrain and recruit that talent from across the country and around the world. One of the things uh, you mentioned off the top is making sure that our young people are remaining in sports. And one of the barriers that continually gets talked about is is cost. And And I know that it differs mm-hmm. from sport to sport, but how do you sure. address that from a Sport Calgary perspective and, and get ahead of that so that uh, parents and, and those who want to get involved aren't feeling those pressures? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's a really important priority for Sport Calgary. And, uh, you know, we try to get people even introduced to sport in our All Sport One Day and All Sport One City initiatives. And, uh, we, you know, we, we try to offer a number of sports across the gamut. And we're also trying to keep up to speed with the new people that are coming here, particularly those that are coming from other parts of the world and the types of sports that they like to access. And so, um, you know, we, we do want to ensure that it is accessible. A healthy city is a good aspiration to have uh, as, as, you know, an active city uh, that we live in. And, um, you know, so we work with governments to try to provide assistance to sport and community associations and, uh, you know, also are really concerned about if people do participate in sport, that they're playing respectfully and it's safe for them to play. Uh, so there's, you know, multifaceted approach from uh, Sport Calgary perspective that we want to ensure that uh, as many people, young and old, get involved in sport. One of the things, too, that comes along with that, we talked about government, but also a private sector. And I, and I know it's been tough times, but as things start to turn around and as start, things start to spin again, how important is it to be able to get the different organizations within uh, the Sport Calgary umbrella to get out there and start saying, hey, you guys can be uh, helping these young people, whether it's through jerseys, sponsorships, or you know the facilities to get built, that kind of thing, to, to keep the, the wheels moving. Yeah, you know, I think what's uh, so interesting is Sport Calgary has been um, incredibly successful during this downturn in keeping companies and uh, the corporations engaged in in our activities and our mission. And so uh, we've actually benefited from a slight growth in some of the number of companies that have been supporting us. But absolutely, we've got to continue to engage them and can probably spread our wings even further um, I think, you know, uh, there's a great recognition that it's a great economic contributor, but also just really in an, in an, in an attempt 
to create a healthy city, attract this talent. There's going to be uh, more and more organizations that are interested in the work we're doing, and we're hopefully going to get better and better and better at it. I think uh, the people that have have uh, preceded me in this role have done a great job in leading the organization, and uh, you know, hopefully I can build on their success to date. When it comes to the individual organizations and those who are competing in the sports, what's your main message heading into uh, the foreseeable future uh, so that they've kind of got their uh, peace of mind when it comes to getting into sports in the city? Uh, as far as the children go, you mean? Mm-hmm. or, or I, I think from the kids' perspective, but also from those who are organizing and those who are uh, a part of the organizations that are, uh, that are taking part in this or that are uh, organizing uh, sports in the city. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would encourage all the people that are organizing this sport to continue down the path and stay committed to ensuring that we have a, a healthy city. It's a it's a primary objective of the city, and uh, we can help steward that, and uh, we're here to help them in any way that we possibly can. And uh, as far as the population or general population is, uh, if you don't know what sport to get engaged in, come to our website, come to our All Sport One Day, and you get to experience a number of events, you know, over the course of uh, the event. You could try multiple sports in in one day and uh, find out what you're passionate about. So um, I think it will, it's all very important in trying to keep this city healthy and uh, the future generations healthy. Mary, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on the post with uh, Sport Calgary. You're more than welcome and thank you very much. All right, let's turn our attention now to something that I ranted and raved about yesterday when it comes to consultations. And sometimes I feel like there's this dragging of the heels going on. And I'm not sure how this all played out, but somehow the coincidence happened. And we see a uh, report coming out from the Fraser Institute today saying uh, establishing clear consultation guidelines, recognizing indigenous property rights key to providing certainty for pipelines and resource projects. Joining us now to talk about his research is Malcolm Lavois, assistant professor at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law, and also doing this report for the Fraser Institute. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Not at all. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Is this as easy as saying, hey, let's set up a checklist, and then throughout the consultation process, you can just check everything off, and then once it's done, boom, you've got yourself a game plan? Uh, no, unfortunately, it's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, so the duty to consult is a, is a constitutional obligation. Uh, governments uh, have to meet it. They can't unilaterally alter the nature of their obligations. Um, so, and courts have said that it's not a checklist, right? That there has to be some sort of good faith engagement and, and courts aren't willing to reduce it to a checklist. That said, there are steps that you can take to create greater certainty. So one of the things that could be done in British Columbia would be to resolve some of these land claims so that you get clearer uh, Indigenous property rights, jurisdiction for Indigenous governments, etc., and you're not relying on this kind of uncertain standard of whether the procedure of consultation was adequate. At the same time, though, there are steps governments can take to make consultation a little bit clearer. So, for instance, the government of Alberta uh, has a consultation policy through the Aboriginal Consultation Office where they say there are essentially three levels of of consultation. They set out particular timelines for those. They set out what consultation has to look like depending on what level of consultation you're 
you're in. Um, and as long as those get upheld by the courts, I mean, ultimately the courts are in the driver, driver's seat here, but something like that can give you a little bit more information or a little bit more certainty about what specifically is required. So it's a little more complicated than a checklist, but governments can uh, help put a little bit more meat on the bones of these obligations to provide a little bit better certainty. One of the questions I, I think that really helps in this process, and especially around that certainty, is where do you start when talking about establishing clear consultation guidelines? Uh, sure, sure. So one one place uh, to start would be, of course, to engage with Indigenous groups to uh, see what their ex- expectations are. Uh, it's always better um, uh, not uh, to be uh, unilaterally imposing these things. And so uh, see what it is that, it, that Indigenous groups hope to, to get out of the process. In many cases, um, it's, uh, it's a real partnership. And you have uh, duty to consult success stories uh, all over the place with impact benefit agreements where uh, First Nations come to the table um, uh, and agree to support a project in exchange for uh, ensuring that their uh, their concerns are met, and uh, in many cases, in exchange for sh- uh, some share of the economic uh, benefits. Those are those are success stories. Um, but uh, especially when you're dealing with projects that affect a large number of groups, like pipelines, um, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have some groups uh, that won't that won't come to agreement um, that that will remain uh, opposed. And in, and in those cases. Um, I think you need to try to get to a place where you have clear timelines. That's certainly part of of, uh, of what we mean by certainty. Um, and then clear uh, steps and, and expectations, both for uh, uh, project proponents, for governments, and for Indigenous groups in terms of when they have to put certain concerns forward, uh, when, say, industry proponents would have to provide their responses to some of these concerns, um, and how those will be evaluated. Would that help in terms of, I'll use uh, the, the sports term, which is you could then bring in an arbitrator if the two sides don't necessarily agree or if the deadlines aren't met or, or that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Well, cer- certainly. So that can be part of the, part of the process. So the uh, consultation project process for uh, provincial projects in Alberta, which I think uh, has a lot to recommend it, in that process, the Aboriginal Consultation Office kind of acts in that role. It's uh, mm-hmm. most of the obligations in terms of uh, providing information and suggesting or uh, providing for accommodation, those obligations are, are uh, uh, pushed to the project proponents or, or uh, uh, delegated to the project proponents. And then the Aboriginal Consultation Office uh, looks at the consultation process and accommodation that's taken place and, and says, uh, yes, this, this is sufficient, uh, or no, go back to the drawing board. Um, and uh, and that, that, that sort of provides the sort of first layer of assessment, the sort of referee role. Um, of course, ultimately, in, this, in these cases, the courts are the, are the final decision maker, and so those kinds of decisions can, end up, can ultimately end up before the courts. But I think it is helpful, as you say, to have a uh, neutral uh, arbiter, or, or at least uh, some kind of arbiter, making determinations as to when consultation is adequate, and that can be part of uh, uh, creating greater certainty. I think the other part of it, too, is, and I kind of railed on it a little bit during my show yesterday, is sometimes it feels like governments almost will hide behind the notion of consultations uh, as almost code word for dragging heels. Or on the flip side, you have those on the other side who maybe hey, we need more consultation in hopes that there is some dra- uh, heels being dragged. And so uh, bringing in an arbitrator or having the court process in a little bit sooner might help expedite the process and, again, maybe clear up some of the uh, uncertainty that is surrounding some of these 
projects or even beyond the the energy industry is maybe some of the other things that that we see on a day-to-day basis when it comes to uh, different levels of government having to do business together. You're certainly right about uh, about the potential for for delays, um, and certainly there are different situations in which delays can suit one side or the other. Maybe they could suit a government that's looking to uh, uh, put off making a decision. And in, in some cases, uh, if you had a, a community that was resolutely opposed to a development, delay you know delay can add cost to a project, and ultimately it can render that project uh, unviable. And so you can you can in theory uh, uh, end up with delays that uh, that can kill uh, can kill projects so um, that's certainly something clear timelines and, and reasonable timelines are, are definitely something uh, that we would want to be attuned to in this area how difficult is it to navigate the waters when you have different groups uh, who might you think might be on the same page but they're certainly not and you use the example uh, where there's some indigenous groups who are supporting a project like a pipeline and then there's other indigenous groups who are opposing it yeah, yeah. Well, and it can get even more complicated than that. Of course, you can have some groups uh, supporting and some groups opposed, which is what you had um, for both uh, Trans Mountain and, uh, and and Northern Gateway. And then among among groups that have concerns or, or or are opposed, they can be opposed for different reasons. They can be seeking accommodation measures uh, that aren't necessarily consistent with each other. And so there's a serious practical challenge as to what uh, as to what consultation looks like when you have multiple groups affected, and and that's. I think part of what we've seen with pipeline consultations, how difficult they can be, that even, you know, a government um, with uh, a commitment to making a project go ahead, as it seemed like the Harper government was committed to Northern Gateway and the Trudeau government to the Trans Mountain expansion, um, they uh, can end up not fulfilling their obligations, even though they have every incentive to do so. That kind of shows uh, how much uncertainty there is in these cases. And one of the sort of perverse outcomes that can happen um, is that the, the, the litigation over consultation can lead to delays, which, of course, could potentially kill projects. Um, and that can ultimately mean that you're kind of privileging the interests of groups opposed, including indigenous groups opposed to development, over those that uh, are supporting development and are seeking to, to use their partnerships with industry uh, as a way of uh, promoting economic development for their communities. So I think that's a, a, a serious concern in this area. And Malcolm, as we continue this discussion, how important is it for the feds to take responsibility for this and maybe make sure that everybody's singing from the same songbook, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. So the duty to consult is still is still relatively new in its current form. It uh, uh, was developed by the courts uh, in 2004. Um, and so there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what's required. And if you get governments developing consultation policies and protocols that uh, that courts then uphold and say, yes, this, this approach to consultation, whether you've got uh, particular uh, specific obligations for different kinds of projects, whether you've got timelines, what have you, if courts uphold that and say, yeah, that, that's sufficient, then you can in principle use that model of consultation for future projects. And, and uh, yeah, that, that can be led uh, by the federal government. Certainly the federal government um, has uh, the main responsibility for interprovincial uh, pipelines. And so that's where 
um, uh, movement would have to come on on those files. But you're absolutely right that once you get models that that uh, are upheld by the courts and that seem to uh, provide for adequate consultation, um, those can then become models for other order, orders of government. And so that's um, one way that we can uh, create greater legal certainty here over time. And even beyond that, it's not even a legal certainty aspect of it, but I assume that what this kind of comes up with is a little bit more of a, a confidence for business or others who can say, hey, the goalposts aren't moving anymore, even for Indigenous groups. I mean, they're not sitting there wondering what the government of the day is going to say. They know that that framework is in place, and therefore all they need to do is make sure that they are uh, playing by the same rule book. Yeah, you're absolutely right that um, some sort of predictability um, is uh, important for, for all parties, really. You know, you need some sort of uh, predictability or, or, or certainty. If you're a project proponent uh, thinking of investing large amounts of money, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, Indigenous groups as well um, who want to try and make reliable plans for their own communities, both for uh, uh, economic uh, development reasons and, and other, uh, other sort of planning they might like to do around their traditional lands and territories, um, having a legal framework in place that lets them know in advance uh, what, the, what the deal is, uh, uh, is, is extremely helpful. In fact, it's necessary for sort of meaningful um, uh, local decision-making. So uh, I, I, I sort of reject the, uh, the idea that legal certainty is something that's only uh, important for, uh, for industry and that is somehow at odds with, uh, with Indigenous interests. I think greater predictability and certainty uh, is, uh, is better for all parties. I couldn't agree more, Malcolm. I do appreciate the time and the insight into your report. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Malcolm Lavois, Assistant Professor, University of Alberta, Faculty of Law, writing a report for the Fraser Institute saying, hey, maybe we need some frameworks behind consultations. Now, the only problem in my humble estimation would be, can you imagine going to a consultation about consultations? Sounds like a city of Calgary thing to me. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. If you head over to Twitter and go to at Kenny, quite the pictures that Jason Kenny has uh, tweeted out saying, had a frank discussion with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about the need to get pipelines built and the devastating potential impact of his tanker ban, Bill C-48, and the no more pipelines, Bill C-69, informed him that Alberta will challenge both bills in court. It's not the text that drew my attention and it not certainly not even when I was watching some of the video of Jason Kenney meeting with Justin Trudeau for the first time since Mr. Kenny was elected as the new premier of this province. It was the body language. I love watching body language because you can't get a better sense of how they really feel towards each other. And everybody makes fun of, you know, Donald Trump and, and his handshakes. Well, I yeah, there wasn't really a whole lot of smiles We'll put it that way. And even the pictures, they're staring each other down. You know that they're not friends, even in the slightest. Clearly, Premier Kenny had a few things that he wanted to get off his chest with his first meeting today with the, with the PM. 
Tell me what you told the president. I largely reiterated the message that I presented to the Senate today, that if these bills pass, they'll be devastating both for our economy and they will also hurt national unity. So I've called, I asked the prime minister to please reconsider these bills. Um, and I hope that he'll listen to, to Albertans on that. And give me your sense. You've obviously known each other for a while as politicians mm -hmm. in different parties in the House. Um, you have different positions now and you're representing different constituencies. And how's that relationship? Well, uh, look, we, we, we both have to uh, work together respectfully. We each have uh, our, a job to do. Um, but I think the prime minister's job, it, first and foremost, is to maintain national unity. And I think that's been undermined by some of the uh, the current federal liberal policies. Uh, and we both have a job to, to promote prosperity and job creation, which is also undermined by the uncertainty created by the No More Pipelines law and the tanker ban. So I think I've registered those points very clearly with the Prime Minister in a respectful way. A question for folks back in Alberta. From, uh, so you spent the day or so here in Ottawa. What would you like to say to Albertans about what you hope to accomplish? Did you accomplish what you wanted to do? Well, I hope at the very least uh, this, the government and the Senate here understand that we are absolutely serious about fighting for uh, Alberta jobs uh, and uh, uh, our future. Um, as I've, I've been very clear that we will not take uh, these uh, attacks on our prosperity lying down, that we are prepared to use every tool at our disposal, legally and politically. And that's why it was clear that we will launch an immediate constitutional challenge of the No More Pipelines law should it be passed in its current form. How difficult do you think life is for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau right now? Not only does he have to deal with Andrew Scheer, he's also got Ontario Premier Doug Ford in town, and he's also got Alberta Premier Jason Kenney in town. I'm sure all three of those are going to be meeting. Actually, I believe uh, the two premiers are going to be meeting tomorrow. Andrew Scheer definitely took advantage of the situation in question period today. Mr. Speaker, it's not just administrative reasons when you've got two Canadians unlawfully jailed in China. Now our canola exports are being unfairly blocked and we can add the pork producers of this country who are those paying for the mistakes of this Prime Minister on the world stage. And what is the Prime Minister's response in terms of these attacks on nothing. Canadians' interests? Absolutely nothing. nothing. But it's worse than nothing. There's still sending Canadian tax dollars to the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which is run by China. So how many more people and how many more industries will have to suffer before this Prime Minister finally takes action? The Honourable Minister of Agriculture. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, I'm sorry. Uh, what's going on with the pork industry is an administrative issue, and I'm confident that we will find a solution very rapidly. Mr. President, Conservatives are keeping playing little politics, playing politics, and I, I would like you to know that today we have learned that the leader of the opposition is refusing to allow an independent check on the cost of their promises. So I think that the Conservatives are hiding the, the same way Doug Ford is hiding their very big cops. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Well, Mr. Speaker, the Canadians have paying for the broken promises of this government ever since the 2015 election. That will come to an end in October, Mr. Speaker. Another area where this Liberal government has completely failed Canadians has been on the energy sector. The Conservative record on pipelines has been to see the private sector build four major pipeline projects during our time in offense. But the Liberals have vetoed and killed and now purchased a pipeline that they can't 
Bill. And Bill C-69 is the final nail in the coffin. More and more Canadians are speaking out against it. Will they speak? The Honorable Minister of Natural Resources. Oh, Mr. Speaker, the Honorable Member of the Opposition is absolutely wrong. We are the government that gave approval to Nova Gas Line that has been completed. We are the government that um, approved Enbridge Line 3 that's almost completed on the, on the Canadian side. We are advocating with the U.S. on Keystone XL Pipeline. We are the government that has put in a pro process in place to uh, move forward on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion in the right way with a meaningful consultation with Indigenous community, something they voted against, Mr. Speaker. The right way was buying a pipeline from the private sector? What? Anyways, I think it was a good day for conservatives in Ottawa today. Just a wild stab in the dark. Moving on now to uh, more provincial politics. Said it was a good day for conservatives in Ottawa. Unfortunately, I, I think that there's a, a little thing that's kind of still hampering the Conservatives here. And former Premier, current opposition leader, Rachel Notley, uh, going after the UCP leadership process today, saying, hey, it's about that time where we need a special prosecutor to determine what exactly happened in the 2017 UCP leadership race. Well, I think what we know is that uh, the, the allegations and the concerns, the facts that are out there are pretty broad ranging. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a broad ranging type of conduct that uh, has been complained about um, and, uh, and it's a broad and, and it's geographically uh, broad ranging. And so uh, Albertans should be concerned and it is important that these investigations continue. And yes, it is, uh, uh, I understand Mr. Kenny did get elected even though many in the public were aware that these investigations were underway. But at the end of the day, the law is the law. And, um, and, and uh, prosecution and investigation of the law must be kept independent from political interference. And so this is why it is so fundamentally important that a special prosecutor be appointed um, immediately and and again that uh, uh, for every day that that doesn't happen the ethics commissioner um, should be um, uh, looking into uh, whether this amounts to a breach. Nanali is also calling on the ethics commissioner to investigate whether there's a conflict of interest involving Premier Jason Kenney or his attorney general Doug Schweitzer. She says the two have statutory authority over those who engage in prosecution and those who engage in prosecutions. The uh, Notley's also saying MLA, P uh, MLA Peter Singh should not be sworn in or be forced to sit outside caucus until an investigation is complete after police raided his place of business before the election. I said it after the election. I continue to say it as we knew full well that these things were not just going to magically go away. I do question the timing around NDP leader Rachel Notley's decision because realistically, she knew that Jason Kenney was in Ottawa. So you didn't really give him a chance to defend himself, one. Two, it kind of feels like it's still almost like sour grapes. Like there are, there are going to be those who are going to say, this is just Premier Not or former Premier Notley trying to get her seat back. I, I said it from the onset, and I'm going to continue to say it. I would love to have an independent investigation into this just to figure it all out. 
because then we can put everything aside and go, okay, here's what happened and get on with it. So we need, we've got more important things to deal with, but if we got to get to the bottom of it, let's do it. So just a, a bit of a, a ripple in the waters for the conservatives, I think, provincially here on this Thursday. You're listening to Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. One of the things that is always enlightening is seeing the good in people coming out. And one of those organizations that does that is Samaritan's Purse. A couple of local staff members are in New Brunswick helping with the flood recovery in that province. Joining us now from Samaritan's Purse here in Calgary is Frank King. Frank, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. As always, you guys have a pretty strong uh, uh, contingent heading out to help those across the the country uh, as they deal with some of the Mother Nature's wrath, and you guys are out in New Brunswick. Yes, uh, we're set set up in New Brunswick, believe it or not, for the sixth time in the last 10 years. So it's just astonishing at how often some of those rivers are uh, flooding in uh, New Brunswick. And then uh, we're just so grateful that, uh, you know, thanks to donations from generous Canadians, we're able to respond every time and offer our services. And they've been accepted. And uh, so we're doing it again this year. And we're going to basically be on the ground with uh, volunteers cleaning out houses starting tomorrow. What kinds of things do you guys, when you guys uh, mobilize and you guys get onto the, the front line, what is priority number one, I suppose? Priority number one is to help um, mostly uh, sort of single moms, uh, senior citizens, uh, those who have maybe have medical issues. Those are always our first priorities in terms of who can we help them when they're in this situation. And then after that, it's, you know, everyone else. So, so we're, we just start. We just start busy, staying busy basically for weeks to come. So we have our disaster relief unit tractor trailer set up at a partner church in uh, Fredericton. And we've uh, been put, putting out a call for volunteers. And we organize those volunteers into teams, give them an experienced leader, uh, give them all the safety and, uh, and uh, sort of uh, repair equipment. And then as folks phone in and ask for, for help, we send these teams out uh, to go out and do this help for folks uh, at no cost to the homeowners. In these kinds of cases, you guys are always uh, communicating, and that is always the key in any kind of disaster situation, is making sure that everybody is on the same page. Uh, this even goes to the, the point of uh, we don't go somewhere unless we're invited. We don't want to be, you know, pushing our way into a situation that's already, you know, fraught with emotions and everything else to say, hey, we're here and we're going to help with you like it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we go when we're invited. We offer our services. We explain what we can do. And then, you know, emergency uh, uh, staff or governments or whatever say, yes, please come in and help. And that's when we come into that com- community. And as I say, I think they know us uh, fairly well in New Brunswick now. And obviously for any of your uh, listeners who want to know more about all our Canadian disaster relief work, the place to go is SamaritansPurse.ca. Talk a little bit about the preparation that goes into even prior to flying out to wherever you need to go, because obviously, as you mentioned, there's emotions and everything is so charged. And then you have just the reality of situations. I mean, we saw it here in Calgary in 2013 is those unthinkable things happen. Right. And so it it takes a toll on a person. And so they've got to be able to go in ready to uh, face those kinds of hardships. 
Yeah, there's there's two approaches we take here. Number one is uh, when we talk to our volunteers, our teams of volunteers every morning, we tell them that um, the goal is not to get the job done as quickly as possible. The goal is to get the job done, but at the same time, reach out to um, the homeowners. And if that means stopping what you're doing and having a half an hour conversation with the homeowner, then absolutely do that. So no one's going to be standing there going, should you get, should you, shouldn't you be getting back to work? No, because part of that work is to actually sort of be there for the homeowner and and just be that listening ear, you know, whatever for to let the homeowner vent about whatever's been going on. Because oftentimes these folks are already dealing with some kinds of situations in their life when the floodwaters hit their homes. So. The floodwater stuff is is on top of oftentimes other things that are going on in their lives, and that's why uh, we tell our volunteers to if you need to stop and have a chat with a homeowner, you stop and have a chat with the homeowner. So that's number one. Number two is our partner organization. That's the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Um, they send crisis trained uh, volunteer chaplains uh, to come alongside Samaritan's Purse at all of our Canadian disaster responses, and then those folks are specifically there uh, to, as we call it, minister uh, to to the volunteers, to the homeowners, to first responders, to anyone who could have been affected by these big volunteer or by these big emergency events, and definitely in their case. Uh, it's to you know offer uh, offer a shoulder to cry on, offer an ear to listen to, and if they're willing to even pray for them. Uh, sometimes these chaplains just stand silently with the homeowner as they watch everything that's going on. Sometimes it's just what we call a ministry of presence. So that deals with the whole emotional, spiritual side uh, of these flood situations. What I want to get to, you talked about the emotional side of things, but the physical side as well. I mean, we're talking generators. We're talking things that we saw that we needed here in 2013, and we're certainly going to be needing elsewhere as we deal with floods, again, like the one in New Brunswick right now. Yeah, the the idea in these cases is, especially in things in like basements and stuff, is to get all the waterlogged possessions and furniture and everything, get that out of the house. Uh, number two is to uh, cut away all the drywall or wall to at least, I can't remember if it's one foot or three feet above the water line, and then remove the wall and then remove all the insulation and also lift up the floor if the floor's been damaged. So essentially, the idea is to leave the house ready to be repaired. So all that work to get the the nasty stuff out of the house is done, and basically what someone can just come in now and just start to do the repairs. And again, we do this all at no cost to homeowners, thanks to very generous Canadian donors. What kind of timeline are you looking at when it comes to New Brunswick in particular? Um, it could be last year when we were there, we were there for approximately a month. And it wouldn't surprise me if we're there for about the same amount of time this year. Essentially, we're there until uh, we take care of all the work orders. And what happens is uh, we've got we broadcast or sort of a pub, publicize a toll-free number for our uh, our disaster relief unit. We have someone answering that phone, and then people who need help with their houses they phone in. We take it down. We, then we send out the team. So once all those work orders from people are basically taken care of, and there are no more coming in, we're done. For more information on this, you can go to SamaritansPurse.ca. Frank King, thanks so much for the time as always. Thank you so much. I appreciate all this time to let folks know what's going on. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.